Our passage, it's a lengthy passage, as you can see in the bulletin. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, this is one of those mornings where I wish I had the voice of James Earl Jones to read it. Or I, I almost ended up using a, a recording by Max McLean, because Max McLean's reading of this is so good. But I decided I would take it on my own. This is God's holy and inerrant word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was, it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, and multi- be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. 
And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating uh, that he had done. In order to understand Genesis chapter 1, we have to figure out what type of writing is this? Is it prose? Is it mythology? Is it something else entirely? Early on in my Christian life, I didn't really answer or ask questions like that. I wasn't concerned about genre or structure or literary analysis. From my devotional time, I read Our Daily Bread. Some of you read that. I still do sometimes. Um, I loved my Bible. I had a childlike trust in my Bible. Now that I'm all grown up and I read scholarly books and have grown-up stuff to say, uh, I don't want all of the grown-up stuff to take away from a simple uh, childlike love for God's Word. And I don't want you to lose that either. I I want you to walk away from today's sermon saying, man, I love God's Word. God's Word is so absolutely magnificent because it is. It truly is. There's nothing like this anywhere else in all of literature, in all of the world. So then why do we care about questions such as genre? Genre is important because it helps us discern, are these words meant to be taken literally or figuratively? What was the intention of the author? Because to be a good reader, you have to honor the intentions of the author. Really, that's the key to all human communication, is to honor the intentions of the one who is speaking to you. Um, I heard you say this. Is is that accurate? Is that what you meant? Because I want to understand you. We're given a, a challenging feat to try and understand an author who wrote 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, or however many thousand years ago. But we need to take great pains in trying to figure out what is it that you mean to communicate to your original audience. 
So Genesis 1, what kind of writing is this? When you read it, the first thing you notice, it isn't the normal way historical prose is written. And this doesn't sound like something that is taken out of 1 Samuel or 1 Chronicles. It doesn't sound like your normal historical writing. No, how does it sound then? It, it sounds very patterned, very repetitious, very rhythmical. I probably didn't do a good enough job of it when I was reading it, but uh, it, you, know, you have all of these repeated refrains, and these refrains, I think they're meant to create a rhythm. And here's how it goes. And God said, let there be, and it was so. He saw it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be, and it was so. He saw it was good. You kind of get your, your body moving to the rhythm. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Have, have you ever noticed the rhythm before in this passage? Because it's there. Not only is there a rhythm, but there's also parallelism. I alluded to this last week, that days one, two, and three are in parallel with days four, five, and six. You can almost think of them as a, a column right here and a column right here. And then both of those two columns are, are coming out from the row of verse two. Because in verse two, it says that the Lord, when the Lord created the earth, it was formless and it was empty. So days one, two, and three are God's attempt to form the formlessness. He forms these, the formlessness into realms. Then days four, five, and six, he fills the emptiness with rulers. So you have the realms of the sky, the sea, the land, the, um, and then you have the, the rulers, the fish and the birds and the creatures and so forth. So there's this, this parallelism. On the back table, I put there a visual representation of Genesis chapter 1. It was written by one of my friends, Eric Costa, who's a pastor at Ascension Presbyterian Church just outside of Portland. It's really cool how he laid it out. And a lot of the uh, points that I make this morning are things that I learned from him. How long does it take for, these, for this creation event to be completed? Well, obviously, it takes seven days What's significant about the number seven? Well, seven, seven is a symbolic number. Throughout the Bible, the number seven is a symbol of divine perfection, divine completion. So, what kind of writing is this? What kind of writing has rhythm, repeating stanzas, repeating refrains, and symbolism? The survey says, Do the drum roll. The tension is building in the room. These are all the characteristic features of a song. This is a song. Have you ever thought of Genesis 1 in those terms? That this is the creation song. At the end of chapter 8 in C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew, we read the breathtaking account of the creation of Narnia. Lewis describes it this way. He says that in the darkness something was happening at last, A voice had begun to sing. It seemed to come from all directions at once. 
And though there were no words, there, were hardly, there was hardly even a tune, but it was beyond comparison the most beautiful noise anyone had ever heard. They looked above them and, and saw the blackness was now filled with stars, and each of the stars were singing as well. Then the wind came rushing in. The blackness t- uh, of the sky turned to a budding gray. Hills began to stand up around them. The sky changed to pink and then to a brilliant gold. And as soon as the voice swelled to the mightiest sound it could produce, the sun rose over the hills, and from the sun's light, they could see the source of the singing. What was the source? A large golden lion standing in the middle of the valley, raising its voice in song. You see, Lewis, he understood Genesis 1 is a song. That's why he has Aslan sing Narnia into existence. Have you ever thought about it in, that, in those terms? God created the universe that way. I think you musicians especially should have an appreciation for the fact that, that God, first and foremost, is a, is a musician. He's a singer. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, out of an overflow of the love for each other, began to raise their voices in chorus. Um, I'm probably not doing it justice. It's just, it's frankly incredible. Our triune God singing together in chorus. You know, sometimes you walk outside in nature, and uh, it's not just the birds that are singing. Don't you have a feeling sometimes when you're outside that everything is singing? That, That this whole world is singing? I wonder if this isn't why. Because it began in singing. Okay, moving on. There are many interesting features about each of these days. Uh, But for the sake of time, let me mention the three that stood out most to me in my studies this week. Let's begin with day four. Day four is interesting because of the names that it gives to the sun and moon, or actually the lack of names it gives to the sun and moon. Everywhere else in the Bible, they are called sun and moon. Um, But here, Moses directly avoids giving them a name. Instead, he, he refers to them just as lights. He calls them the greater light and the lesser light. Why would he do that? Well, you have to remember, Israel's neighbors, the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians, they gave names to the sun and moon and names to just about everything else. Ra, he was, that was the name of the sun god, Nana, that was the name of the Mesopotamian moon god. Israel's neighbors worshipped them as deities, and they worshipped all sorts of created things. Sun, moon, and stars, cats, birds, and snakes. So in its original context, here's what I'm trying to say. Genesis 1, in its original context, wasn't written to combat Darwinian evolution or scientific naturalism. Now, I'm not saying it has, has nothing to say on that topic, but Genesis 1 in its original context was written to combat the polytheism and nature worship that pervaded the ancient world. It was really God's way of saying to his people, I mean, come on, guys. Don't, don't worship what everybody else is worshiping. Um, 
It's almost as if Moses is, is saying, I'm not even going to dignify the sun and moon by giving them a name. Israel, don't worship what your neighbors do. God is the creator. Worship him alone. We can look at it today and say, uh, such silly primitive people. Why? Worshiping and following after all of the things that their neighbors were. And then we realize, man, we are no better off than they are, are we? I mean, we worship sports. We worship our kids' success. We worship self-fulfillment. We worship entertainment. So God's message is still the same. Worship your creator in humbleness. Day two is, is also very interesting, if we turn back there, because it includes the separation of the waters. There are waters above, which are separated from waters below, by a Hebrew word, which in this translation of the Bible, I gave you the NIV, water above, water below, there is a vault in between. The ESV version of the Bible translates that as an expanse. And some of the other translations translate it as a dome. So you, what's going on here? We know what the waters below are. Those are oceans and seas. But what are waters above? What are those? Not all scholars, but some scholars believe that this concept comes from the ancient Near Eastern view of how the world is. This is an ancient Near Eastern cosmology. The ancient people understood that there were heavenly waters above a vault in the sky, and when the vault opened, the waters would fall as rain. What's going on is God is accommodating himself to the original readers by using categories and concepts familiar to them. I mean, we all know there's not a vault in the sky, um, and God does too. <laughs> but I did this on Thursday as, a, as an experiment. I walked outside and stood in the middle of a field, and you should try this too. Go out on a, on a beautiful, clear, blue day and look to the northern horizon. Stand in the middle of a field, look to the northern horizon, trace your line of sight all the way back to the southern horizon. Then do the same from the eastern horizon to the, have I got my directions mixed up? Wherever is the east and the west here? Do that. What does it look like? It looks like there's an invisible dome above us with blue waters up above. It actually, the world looks like that. You say, well, did the, did the Hebrews and other ancient people actually believe that there was a dome like that? Um, I, my guess is probably not. But, you know, if a Martian were to listen to you and me talk, we say things like, uh, the sun rose. The sun rose this morning. Did the sun actually rise? No, but we talk as though it did. Now, why in the world am I going into this? I, I guess I just wanted you to see I wanted to ask, have you ever seen that before in this passage? I, what's weird is that we can go all of our lives reading the Bible, reading something familiar like Genesis 1, and never, met, never even stop to wonder, what is this about waters above and waters below and a, and a vault in between? And we, had you ever seen the parallelism before with days 1, 2, and 3, 4, 5, and 6? We, it's there. But God's word is like a diamond with so many different facets. We have to pull out the jeweler's loop 
and, and really examine it in order to appreciate it because it is so wonderful. It is so wonderful. And the light refracts, refracts in it. The colors are always different if you take enough time to pay attention to them. Day seven is the most important of the days. Uh, it's the final day in the list. It's the only day that doesn't have a pair with it. It's obviously very different from the others since God doesn't create on the seventh day. The actual structure of the song is here in order to make you, the reader, ask the question, what is so special about the seventh day? We know it's the Sabbath. We know it's the day God rested. We know it's the day God rested. What a strange expression. God rested? Did he sit down in his easy chair and drink an Arnold Palmer? For God to take his rest, here's actually a place where scholars of the ancient world are very helpful to us because they will tell, they'll tell you if you read the literature, uh, for God to take his, for any God to take their rest, that had a very specific meaning in the past. Um, Gods always took their rest in their temple. See, what's happening on the seventh day, it's not as though God is taking a divine nap. Um, All creation is God's temple. All creation. The heavens and the earth and everything, all of it, all of it is his holy place for him to dwell. It's, It's all God's temple. And on the seventh day, God is moving into it. As one writer puts it, the creation story of Genesis 1 begins with a good creation inhabited by a good and beautiful God, a holy world functioning in perfect harmony because the presence of, his, of its creator has come to dwell there. You say, wow, Lord, all of this is your temple. I've never been in a temple before. I've never been in a Buddhist temple or a Hindu temple, an LDS temple, an ancient Greek or Roman temple. Here's one thing that every scholar on temples will tell you, is uh, there was one final step in a temple construction process, at least for a temple in the ancient world. One crucial final step without which the temple was, was not complete. There was one last action which had to take place before it was considered to be a temple. Do you know what it was? An image of the God had to be placed inside. That's why every ancient temple that you can find out there in archaeology has an image of its God inside of it. Dagon's temple has an image of Dagon. Baal's temples have an image of Baal. So here's the million-dollar question. What did God choose to put as his image in this temple? Go ahead. Somebody yell it out. Man, us! Us! We are the living statues of God on this earth. We testify that this is all his temple because we bear his image. And I'm going to go into a lot more of what that means next week. We bear his image and we testify to every living creature that this world belongs to God. He is the Lord of this temple. And he has put us here, if you saw the Tom Wright quote at the front of your bulletin, he has put us here uh, 
in a place as a way of reflecting his love into the world and drawing out the praise and glory from the world back to himself. So there, three days. There is so much more that which could be said about the, the days here. Uh, before I go on to answer the question of how old is the earth, let's just make it clear that that's not the question Genesis 1 is attempting to answer. I mean, the question Genesis 1 is striking at is the question of who is this God and what is he like? How is he different from all the gods of the surrounding nations? And how should you, my people Israel, interact with his creation differently than they do? Still, asking questions about the age of the earth, are, are, they're important for us to ask. It, it, while it may not be a big deal for you, it is a big deal for a lot of people who are not Christians. Because a lot of people who are not Christians have been told science has disproven Christianity and uh, you know, so on and so forth. You know that. Modern science maintains that the earth is approximately 4.5 billion years old. Christian creation science, on the other hand, maintains the world is eh, 6,000-ish to 10,000 years old. They believe that each of the six creation days are 24-hour periods of time. So creation took place in approximately 144 hours and we're six to 10,000 years from that point. What do I believe? Um, as you probably guessed based on the interpretation of Genesis 1 I just gave you, I fall in the old earth uh, camp. I read Genesis 1 more poetically, like a, uh, like a song. Um, but honestly, I do so with fear and trepidation because every single one of my seminary professors we're six 24-hour-a-day guys. And I, I, I'm not one to reject the teaching of my elders very quickly. Um, they're m- far more intelligent than I, are, I am. And <laughs> <laughs> that was so Freudian, Freudian slip. Man. And they know Hebrew infinitely better than I do. Um, Some people, you know, think that the old earth position is a new position, only recently offered due to the challenges posed by modern science. It's simply not true. You've had, all the way back to the 4th century in Augustine, Augustine was asking the question, are these really 24-hour days? Why would they be 24-hour days when the sun isn't even created until day four? You have three sunrises and sunsets before there's even a sun to do so. Uh, Augustine, again, in the fourth century, he couldn't understand why it would take an omnipotent God a full seven days to create something. Why didn't God, if he's omnipotent, just create it instantaneously? So Augustine adopted this view of instantaneous creation, that God created everything immediately, and then the resulting days were sort of a metaphorical work week, God's metaphorical work week. It used to be that the topic of the age of the earth was a topic that Bible-loving, God-loving, sincere Christians could sincerely disagree with each other on. Uh, Now, at least what I see out there is there's a palpable disdain between the old earth and young earth camps. Young earthers are country bumpkin primitive fundamentalists, as they are called, and old earthers are 
Bible-denying enemies of the truth. It's almost, and we see this, don't we? It's almost as if the polarization of America, red, blue, left, and right, has made its way into the church and has uh, created a great deal of harshness. There's a harshness between, uh, that has come to characterize us. I could go into all of the different reasons why I think that the earth is older than it is. I'm sure part of it is I, I was a hydrology major in, in college. I took tons of geology courses. I mean, none of us, look, none of us are purely neutral in our evaluations of anything. We're strongly influenced by, by our own story and the own, our, the own, our own things that we have, have learned. Um, I had several more paragraphs in this sermon about going through all the different reasons why, why it should be interpreted as old earth versus new. But um, this is something we should be able to disagree with, with each other uh, on charitably. The bigger question isn't even on the age of the earth. It's on evolution and whether or not evolutionary biology is compatible with a historic Adam and Eve. And since I thought I'm going to talk about the image of God next week, I would table the evolution question uh, until then. But here's, here's the takeaway that I'd like, to, like you to have from the sermon. If you are new here, and maybe a friend invited you this morning, you're exploring Christianity, here's my one piece of advice for you as you start. Begin with the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then work outwards. What do I mean by that? There are going to be things in Christianity that you have lingering questions about. The hot-button topics, the relationship between science and religion, philosophical questions like the problem of evil, why are there so many different religions in the world, etc., etc. Those are questions that deserve thoughtful reflection, but they're not the core issues to our faith. I've used the image before that Christianity is like a large swimming pool. It has a shallow end and it has a deep end. Most people think the, shallow, the deep end are those controversial questions like evolution and the age of the earth, but that's not true. Those, the controversies are actually the shallow end, and if you try diving in there, well, we know what, what can potentially happen to you. Now, the place to dive in and swim is in the deep end, and in the deep end of the pool is found the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus— the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of sin, of salvation, the community of the Holy Catholic Church that Jesus has made as his bride. So my, my uh, piece of advice to you would just be simply focus yourself there. I know that some people are worried that if we don't believe Genesis 1 is a historical 24-hour days, then how can we trust any other part of the Bible to be historical? Can we trust the gospel accounts to be historical, accurate representations of the life of Jesus? To, to that question, I say, absolutely. Why? Because it claims to be history. It claims to be history. Not everything in the Bible claims to be history. I mean, there's a lot of figurative language throughout, let's say, the Psalms. In the Psalms, God is called a rock. He is called an eagle. Jesus calls himself the door, but the cross on which he was crucified is no metaphor. It's a real historical event. The grave that he was raised from 
is a place you can actually go and visit in Jerusalem today. Our faith stands and falls on whether or not those events happened. And the most astounding news in the universe is, yes, in fact, they did. Uh, People of all saints, I don't think we have fully grappled with the wonderful um, idea here that God is a singer. My prayer is that God would fill you with the joy that this passage brings and the meal, the joy of the meal we're about to, to receive. You know, a lot of people have a vision or a view of Christianity as that we're just these dour folks. We never smiled at anything. We never have any fun. Why don't you open up the, the word to them and show them on the very first pages of Scripture, God's a singer. Why don't you tell them that when they go outside at night— and they see the stars above. Those stars are singing. They are singing and telling about the glory of God. And why don't you ask them to open their hearts to that song? I mentioned earlier from the magician's nephew, you may recall that in that story, there are two distinct responses that occur when the people heard the lion sing. Uncle Andrew and the witch, they hated the song. They put their their fingers in in their ears and stopped them up. They they wanted to run away from the song and bury their heads in the sand and hide in a hole to get away from the song and from the singer. That's an apt metaphor for what people do today in their agnosticism and atheism. They're running from the song. But then there's another wonderful reaction that people have. We read, quote, With each note, the trees and mountains and animals and rivers, flowers and all sorts of lovely things were bursting forth into existence. And those who were present loved the singing so much that they said they could remain before that song for an eternity, listening to it with pleasure forever and ever. I can't wait to hear that song for all of eternity. Can you? Can you hear it now? Can you hear it now? I, I mean, January is such a bleak time. <laughs> Even though we've had a pretty good January, um, I've talked to a number of you, and you just, you, you're sick, and you're depressed, and gray, and blue, and you've got nothing left in your, in your tank. Um, here's something I heard Eric say, and I'll conclude with, conclude with it. It really struck with me. If you can hear the song, you realize this world is full of meaning. It is full of meaning. We look up and we think there's no positive trajectory in my life. There's no intrinsic value to my life. There's meaning. There's no meaning. There's no purpose in my life. I feel like, I just feel done. I'm so sick of it. But God created this world good. And he created you good. He actually created this world and you very good, it says. And it's full of meaning. He hasn't given up on this world, even though it's been terribly marred by the fall. And he has not given up on you. So you don't give up on this world or on this life. This is God's temple. And he's coming back to live here again with us as image bearers. So don't believe the feelings of January Believe this song, believe this refrain, and put your hope in God, your creator, savior, and singer. Amen.